On one hand, I had never been physically stronger, fitter and faster. And I knew my race strategies and I'd trained them down to the steps. But when I got into the blocks and the gun went, all of that planning and preparation around peak performance that didn't look at my headspace and psychological well-being, when the gun went and I was supposed to take 22 steps to that first hurdle, I exploded out of the blocks full of anxiety and panic and arrived at that first hurdle too close. And so at about 20 odd kilometers an hour, I hit that first hurdle, flipped over, landed on my back and fractured my spine. Hello everyone and welcome, welcome to another episode of the Finding Equilibrium show and how are you today? I hope all is well in your world and today my guest is Adrian Medhurst. Now Adrian is a organizational psychologist and co-founder of Benny Button which is extraordinarily exciting and I'm looking forward to talking to you. Welcome uh, Adrian and I, I, I guess I can't help but notice the big pink uh, surfboard in the background giving us a clue to one aspect of your, of your interest and where, where are you today? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm excited about our conversation and I'm uh, joining you from beautiful Lennox Head up in northern New South Wales. Uh, so I guess, yeah, finding equilibrium is a combination of um, working and also living, right? <laughs> Making sure I get time outside, outdoors, so doing things that we love. <laughs> so true. Well, let's kind of start for people who don't know you and uh, you're an organizational psychologist, founder of Benny Button, but how did you, um, what was your journey? How did you actually get to become an organizational, an organizational psychologist? Because it's not something that we often think about when we're at school. So what was your path? Where did it all start? Yeah, well, it actually started off, um, I was a track and field athlete and uh, competed um, at, at an elite level for Australia in uh, a number of competitions. And so before I was a nerdy scientist, psychologist, um, I was actually in the practice of high performance and in that part of my life, it was truly a very, very much a focus on high performance. And, and I was a 400 meter hurdler, which is wow. for those that don't really know a lot about track and field, but hopefully you've seen um, the amazing uh, Olympic <laughs> world records. Um, but 400 meter hurdles is, is an incredibly grueling um, and technical track event. Um, but I loved it. I loved the challenge of it. 400 meters done at a sprint. That's hard enough. And then there's 10 sticks in the way. <laughs> yeah, wow. That's so, yeah, so impressive that you managed to do that. So you were, you were doing that professionally? Well, at an elite level competing for Australia um, um, when I was younger, and it was actually then when I was um, traveling overseas to compete for Australia in the world championships as an under 21, um, I had a, a real insight and a really catastrophic experience but a significant insight from that that led to doing what I'm doing now um, so I can share that backstory and I'll do the quote unquote because it does involve a back injury um, <laughs> I can share that backstory to the extent that it's helpful otherwise the summary is in focusing so much on peak performance in that athletic career I had some significant experiences that showed me if I sacrifice psychological and physical well-being in the service of peak performance 
ultimately that was a recipe for disaster. And that's where now in my research and as an academic, I looked at how can we have well-being and performance, not one at the expense of the other, and to actually study that in significant detail to look at how they're interdependent and what risks there are in the trade-offs. Interesting. You've mentioned the backstory, so clearly you've got our uh, our uh, curiosity. So tell us what happened. So you were you were a um, you were a, an elite uh, athlete, and you were performing. You were traveling around the around, around the world, and uh, and uh, you know clearly in a, in a peak state. But something happened then. So you had a you had a, an accident. So what 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 mm. happened? Yeah. So four hundred meters sprint, ten sticks in the way. You need to know how many steps you're gonna take between each hurdle and your strategy for the event will be accommodating. What lane am I in? How tight is the bend? How wide is the bend? If I'm in an outside lane, how does that compare to where my competition might be? Do I want to lead from the front or come home strong? What are the wind conditions doing? If there's a headwind up the back straight, I might need to change how many steps I'm taking by comparison to if it's a tailwind. So hopefully even in painting this picture for people who are thinking 400 hurdles, how hard can it be? Um, there's actually a hell of a lot yeah, that you need about, to be yeah. very mindful of in your preparation. And so what you can appreciate as well is as you're training and developing your physical fitness, strength, skills, speed, you also need to have the know-how and to have your headspace in the right zone so that you can execute the right plan on the right day based on where you're at in the lane compared to your competitors and so on. And so I enjoyed that. I actually enjoyed the complexity and strategy of that event as well as the physical demands. Um, but to be honest, when I was overseas competing for my country, away from my family, I started to feel a really heavy burden of I don't want to let my Australian team down. I don't want to let my coach and my family down. And the psychological aspect of my performance state um, was really getting uh, a bit of interruption and noise. And unfortunately, I carried some of that anxiety and pre-race um, concern and nerves into a pre-championship warm-up race. So on one hand, I had never been physically stronger, fitter and faster. And I knew my race strategies and I trained them down to the steps. But when I got into the blocks and the gun went, all of that planning and preparation around peak performance that didn't look at my headspace and psychological well-being, when the gun went and I was supposed to take 22 steps to that first hurdle, I exploded out of the blocks full of anxiety and panic and arrived at that first hurdle too close. And so at about 20 odd kilometers an hour, I hit that first hurdle, flipped over, landed on my back and fractured my spine. Oh my Four God. weeks before the most important goal and race of my life, I had quite literally and monumentally hit a hurdle. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. yeah I can laugh about it now because time yeah, is Yeah, but the time it wasn't a, you weren't laughing. No way. Oh my God, so what happened then? So you fractured your spine and then what uh, What? What happened after that? Well, so here's, a, here's what I... Um, what I think is kind of interesting um, and whilst it's potentially a, a symbol of uh, an elite performer just going, what can I do to get back on the track literally? Um, but I, I did that. I didn't want to just suffer the injury without recognizing I still had a really important and meaningful goal, which is to compete for my country. And so I, I guess quite quickly moved past the injury side and said, okay, there's a level of dysfunction, there's pain, there's injury. I am compromised now physically, but 
I actually want to know not what I can't do, what can I do to get to the start line and compete for my country? And that became a mindset uh, that was really important to me. And it actually created a mindset shift in my training and preparation for the, for the world championships. So imagine a track, a, a track athlete like myself, who in adopting that mindset, team managers, doctors, coaches said, well, you're not gonna be running on a track because that's gonna make your spinal fracture worse. So what can we do? Well, we're gonna get you into the swimming pool and you're going to run your race treading water to maintain your fitness. But the most important part of that strategy was to use my mindset and in fact, mindful rehearsal to program into my mind and as a result of treading water into my body, how will I raise, how would I run a successful race in that championship event? Because my brain had suffered the significant issue of the injury mm. and it was actually starting to speculate on, you're going to hit a hurdle again. What's going to happen then? <laughs> wow. And it's obviously trying to do that to keep me safe. It's saying it is risky for you to go and do this race again. So it was projecting that story of failure and another um, sort of monumental stack. And I needed to recognize it was speculating on a potential future, but that may not happen. And how could I reprogram and essentially rehearse running a successful race? And in programming that in mindfully, and it was very much a mindfulness practice, and in encoding that into my body for muscle memory, when I got to the start line and got to compete for my country and the gun went, it was that practice for my headspace and my body coming together that enabled me to run one of my best technical races really? in my career. And this was four weeks after, or did I misunderstand that? This was four weeks four after weeks you after. had the injury. Wow. So you had this injury and like it felt like your whole dream had uh, vanished. And then you... Crashed. By, yeah, literally. And then by recovering and combining but that was quite a so had you done a little work around mindset before that so that you could um really kind because that's quite it's a big message for everyone now you know what can you do rather than what can't you do and because when you're in constraints and we're in, in at the time of recording we're in a lockdown situation in new south wales where you can easily focus on what you can't do as opposed to what you can do but in your situation you manage to really pull yourself together and recover in that uh, in that in that um short period of time i wouldn't have thought it would be possible to um heal a fracture to be able to um compete uh, make it. no mistake about it it didn't heal <laughs> i just <laughs> um i ran with the injury um but the, wow. the point here is um that i had mindsets around performance and some of those mindsets um that were very i guess embedded um were to perform and to push almost at all cost mm -hmm. but this mindset was a little bit um more balanced in that it was helping me to prepare psychologically um, and to ensure that my headspace was right, as well as um, sort of, I guess, being able to see what was possible. Um, and, and the two of those things coming together was very important, actually, because lots of athletes, and we know that a lot of mindfulness rehearsals of a particular um, performance or skill, um, that's something that I had done, like to visualize myself. But I visualized myself in this preparation as a means to regulate and essentially um, help to make more adaptive my psychological functioning, my, my thought processes about the event and about the likely experience and outcomes. Wow. 
Amazing. Thank you for sharing. And how did you do in the um, in, in that in that race? In in the end, having done all that work. It's not the rose petals at his feet and up on the dais in first position. Unfortunately, I didn't win. But um, for me, I, I ran a I ran a good time, um, and I um, was able to compete for my country, which was a really important goal. Um, I went in um, being ranked quite highly, but still not ranked um, for the final. And, and I placed pretty well. Um, as I said, it was early on and I was a, I was a young boy going into it. Um, and, and I was actually really, really pleased with the outcome. Um, and and so, so that's that side of it. I, I, um, I finished my heat, ran really well, learned a hell of a lot from the experience and then continued on into studying psychology and, and wellbeing and performance from there. Wow. So that's really, um, and that's really what happened next. So that was kind of the, um, the, the end of that chapter of your life. And then, and then, and then uh, it was, so it's psychology and well-being and performance and, and, uh, uh, and really understanding that interconnection between the mind, the body. Yeah. And, yeah. So, so interesting. So from there, what happened and how have you developed Benny Button as a, as a pro proposition? Where did that come from? So you, so you've, um, uh, you've, um, had your your uh, career as an uh, as uh, an elite athlete you're then studying psychology and performance and then and then what happened what did you do with that knowledge afterwards to help other people yeah well and, and in psychology there was a lot of a focus on um a, a very medical or dysfunctional model so what's what's um compromised or problematic about our psychology our mental health issues and challenges and how do we um, identify those, identify the risks, recover from them if they happen. Um, there is very much that sort of classic medical model um, that's applied to psychology as well. But when I'd come from a sporting background, I wasn't so much, even though I've shared the experience of sort of injury response and recovery, I was interested in the optimum side. Like what does peak performance look like? What does peak psychological functioning look like? And at the time that I started studying psychology, there was um, a real groundswell in a, in a movement of positive psychology. And um, I actually ascribe to a, a very balanced, which you'll appreciate in terms of the Equilibrium podcast, but um, a balanced and whole systems view. We can't just look at the positive and neglect to focus attention on the negative side. We need to think full spectrum. And it's in fact this thinking that supports the work that we do at Benny Button, where we focus on well-being, not just in terms of risk and cost reduction, um, the health and safety movement, the medical model has done a really good job at helping us to identify and resolve um, as well as we can those sorts of challenges. But in terms of a full spectrum of optimal functioning and well-being, how do we deliberately go after and cultivate and create well-being producing capacities? well-being enabling resources that serve us to function and ultimately perform and contribute at our best. So the studies took me on that path and then Benny Button is really formed um, because there's a recognized opportunity to truly see through the science and the data that well-being and performance are interdependent. Um, we really owe it to ourselves as individuals and in our businesses to enable well-being in our employees and in our organizational cultures, both in the workplace and in life as a whole, because that serves optimal functioning and more sustainable high performance over time. Mm. 
that that all makes sense. So so working, if you take your mindset from working uh, as an athlete into the corporate, you'll see some differences um, into because uh, you know we, we hear that a lot that um, well-being and performance are, are completely interrelated. And when you are an athlete, you know it because you're you know you are the product effectively. So if you're not looking after your well-being, you're not going to perform re really well. It's exactly the same in the corporate. But why do you think there isn't necessarily the same um embracement of that and that often we see corporate employees who are not necessarily as aware of the interconnection of performance to um uh, to to their to their well-being and hence the habits and practices may not necessarily be optimum well i mean i guess in organizations um what gets the attention and when the attention is all around um performance even you know what we sort of connect to that word how we measure it, um, how we incentivize it and so on, uh, without recognizing that performance is ultimately a system. And that in system is not just um, what is our organizational culture, how are our leaders performing, but ultimately, what are the resources that are enabling the individual to function and perform to the extent of their potential, right? And is that potential being compromised in some way? But that hasn't been in full view in organizations or through leadership science. Um, and in fact, employees' well-being was seen as their responsibility. Um, and whilst ultimately as well, it is our responsibility, it's also an opportunity in organizations and for leaders to really capitalize on the potential in well-being by having a, a level of commitment to um, an employee looking after themselves and creating the conditions for that to be possible within the context of a work-life rhythm as well. And, and Benny, Benny Button, so in terms of enabling a business to be able to actually um, uh, do that, what, um, tell us a little bit about Benny Button and how, um, and, and how it's, uh, uh, and how it's structured, uh, you know, right now. I know you've got some really exciting plans as well for the future. Yeah, well, Benny Button, myself and, and my co-founder, Troy Mansell, um, who has a, a different background in coming together. Um, but I'll start with our message uh, and, in fact, our mantra, our, 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 our mission, which is live well, have impact. And it's, in fact... It's around your <laughs> funny it's on your back, that back that has been through so many, so much challenge. The reason for it here, and it's actually something that guides um, the way we think and the way we do what we do, the live well piece is the well-being piece. The have impact piece is to perform and contribute and ultimately have the best impact that you can in your work and life. And this is, yeah, well-being and performance coming together. So we exist as a business to help people, leaders, organizations to live well and have impact. And the way we do that is to bring forward the important and interdependent role of well-being and performance, uh, as well as the reality of work-life agility. And we know now, particularly at these times, the work-life dynamic, the pressures, the blending, the conflicts, the interference, um, those challenges uh, right under our noses in a far greater way than have ever been seen before. Mm -hmm. And we've been talking about work-life agility for a long time, pre-COVID anyway, as the next extension on the work-life balance movement. And we're talking equilibrium, we're talking agility. It's not just semantics. The idea of work-life balance, we really never fulfilled its promise because the idea of balance was almost like once I get the mix right, then henceforth life and work will be amazing. 
it's never that stable. <laughs> and so agility actually starts to, and if we ascribe to that mindset, it tells us these are going to fluctuate. They're going to be dynamic. They're going to be periods of stability and periods of volatility. Mm-hmm. And ultimately in the fullness of our experience, we need to work those dynamics. We need to be conscious if the scales are tipping to one side over another and not have those trade-offs or conflicts ultimately compromise our well-being and performance potential. Uh, so this is the puzzle and the equilibrium puzzle that I think is quite exciting to talk about is well-being and performance, work and life, and how that all comes together. Mm, it's exciting and it can be overwhelming at the same time for individuals who are trying to actually do that. For, for you personally, because you know you you you've got this knowledge and you 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 uh, you know you're doing so many things. But I'd love to know what you do to find equilibrium uh, every day. Because you know we talked before before we started. You're homeschooling, you know, so you've got a lot of things that are you know pushing you out of equilibrium. And you're running a business, and uh, you know you're doing lots of things. But what what are your kind? What are your um, I guess the non negotiables what are the things that really help keep you in equilibrium and to be able to show up and perform in the way that you do great question and i also want to make sure that um i acknowledge that we we're all humans in this (laughs) and i too am fallible right so yes i've got some non-negotiables i've got some routines and practices that i've embedded over a significant period of time. I've also got experiments where I try different things to see what sort of edge they might provide. Um, And I like to stay a little bit fluid in terms of how things evolve, because I think we need to not just be rigid in our habits and routines, but we need to apply what is relevant to the context. So this is where mindfulness plays into it as well. Um, So and the reason why I wanted to start there is because I think many people watching at this point in time The knowing better to being better challenge can be, yeah, we can have some routines, but maybe we relapse and fall off track. We can know what we should be doing. And as you kind of rightly pointed out, it can feel overwhelming. Work, life, well-being, performance. There's so many different things I should be doing to be at my best. And um, we can beat ourselves up when we're not doing those things to the best of our knowledge. Um, so let's just make sure that that's a reality and it's a reality I share, even with, you know, years of sort of knowledge and practice and research mm, and expertise. Definitely, definitely. I just yeah. underline that point, actually, because I hear that a lot, like we're not going for perfection. And in some ways, the um, I think the a huge benefit of the human uh, condition is the fact that we are perfect and yeah. um, we can, you know, knowing and doing are two different things and you don't have to know any, uh, everything. And, and it can feel, because everyone's at a different starting point and, um, you know, you can forget how hard it is just to just to hold things together um, in some situations. But if you do get these good routines and practices together that work for you, and I think it is an individual uh, an individual um, thing, then it really does support you to find equilibrium despite what happens. You know, so it, re- it really does um, help you cope with whatever the world throws at you. And right now, there's a lot of things that are being thrown <laughs> thrown at all of us. <laughs> so, so, so getting back to to your equilibrium what i would call the equilibrium toolkit and what are the what are the tools in your in your box that you use and uh, and i completely acknowledge that it's good to not be too rigid um, because sometimes you can you know that's not good rigid rigidity in itself is out of equilibrium so so just because some is good just doesn't make a lot necessarily better (laughs) exactly right the non-linearity of it all right (laughs) absolutely Um, 
But to, to, to answer the question, I, I can't help myself, but to first start with two, two really important components. The first is breathing. <laughs> um, to be perfectly honest, um, breathing is the most powerful tool that I've found um, to support not only my psychology, but my physiology. And we know that the mind and the body as well in terms of equilibrium, they're fundamentally interdependent as well. They're always speaking to each other. Mm. And we can actually use the breath as a tool to influence our physio physiology. So we can breathe automatically and we tend to do that most of the time, but we can also breathe deliberately. So you can use the breath as a tool, a tool that can influence your physiological state to either upregulate or downregulate your nervous system's response. So you can energize or relax through breathing in particular ways. Um, and the flow and effect is that that can influence our headspace, our psychology, our ability to access um, the regions of our brain and circuitry that can help us to solve problems more creatively, come up with ideas, to exercise greater self-discipline. Um, so there's, there's so much benefit on so many levels of having a breathing practice um, that are not just physiological or not just stress recovery, but that are sort of whole person well-being and performance enabling. Mm. That's one. Breathing, yeah, it's something we often forget, but it's <laughs> it's like it's a thing that uh, you know that you 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 can't survive for uh, how long is it like a few a few seconds without a few minutes without um, without uh, being able to breathe. So it's a, it's a really um, taking control of your breath. So that's yeah. that's important. What what else? Uh, mindset. mindset to actually for for me to um, recognize the role that our mindsets have in shaping our views, in shaping the way that we think about something that's happening, in the way that we feel about it, in the choices and decisions that we make, and ultimately then the actions that we take. Um, our mindsets do influence our physiological responses as well. Um, and ultimately our attitudes and belief systems are shaped mm -hmm. by mindsets. And whilst we've got some programmed um, as a result of evolution, but also programming from um, early childhood experiences and our formative years and so on. Like we, we end up embedding and practicing routinely certain mindsets and at certain times they can be quite adaptive, but we also need to revisit and remember that those mindsets can be changed and upgraded if they're no longer relevant to the current context, if they're no longer serving us, they're no longer helpful, we can deliberately choose to change the settings. Like on our iPhone, we've got default settings. The, the device providers and the software providers set that up for you, but you can get in there and make it work for you as well. That makes sense. So I really get all, all of that in terms of theory, but from a practical point of view, so if someone's actually listened to that and it's like mindset, we often are not even aware of our mindset because it's so in ingrained. And so what, what, what are the routines or the practices that you do to make sure that you do have a healthy uh, mindset on a daily, on a daily basis? Are you, um, you know, monitoring what you read, what you feed your mind, you know, are you journaling? Are you doing some of those practices to really be able to ensure that your mindset is in balance? Yeah, I, for me, and I'm quite a, I guess, a contemplative anyway, I like to sit and reflect on my experiences and then to sort of unpack, okay, what's serving me and what might be a challenge, opportunity, or even a problem um, that I can look at and how, how can I look at that in, in particular ways that can help me to move 
forward. So as an example, you sort of use the idea of um, we're not striving for perfection before. Mm. Um, what that reminded me of was a mindset shift that I brought to my doctoral thesis. Um, ironically, in looking at peak performance and well-being and the experience of um, engagement, optimal engagement versus tipping into burnout, which is another equilibrium puzzle, um, I was nearly burning myself out in completing my doctorate. And I, I was so fanatical about the process of completing that research um, that it was literally wearing me out. And I had to approach this where a lot of perfection is the sort of aspiration with your research. I had to practice the mindset, don't let perfect get in the way of progress. <laughs> and in fact, now what we use when we're trying to help that become more practical in organizations, practice makes progress. Practice makes progress. And so when I'm reflecting on something and I'm identifying, there's a way to look at this in a mindset that would be helpful and adaptive for me. I try to find a little message or a little reminder or even mantra that I can bring to that situation as an anchor, but also as an intention uh, that can support me. I like that. Yeah. So you kind of these these mantras and um, particularly that one um, practice makes uh, progress. I love that <laughs> because we believe some of those things and hence we are programmed. You realize that our mindsets are programmed from just hearing the same thing over and over. And it might not actually be true. I think this is the thing. <laughs> so, OK, so mindset's a big part of your daily routine. What, what else do you do to help find uh, find your equilibrium? Um, time with my loved ones. Time, I, I mean, we were talking before we came on, yeah, and even you mentioned it before homeschooling. Um, but yeah, I've got I've got two young kids and a wife that I absolutely adore. I love all of them, of course. I adore them all. But um, six year old daughter and a two and a half year old son and my wife, and I love being able to spend quality time with them. And in fact, um, combine that with getting out into the natural environment, and I'm a very happy boy. So. Fortunately, live near some incredibly beautiful um, natural environments that um, making the time for myself to be in those places, but also time spent with family in those places is, is so important. <laughs> and I know you made a big shift in you because you were based in. Virginia. Yeah. Well, here's another mindset. Um, so I was living in uh, Richmond in Melbourne um, when the first lockdown in Melbourne uh, happened and I was a you know sort of career consultant traveling interstate a lot of the time. So living in Richmond, being near the CBD and also near enough to the route to the airport made a lot of sense. But ultimately, and with the family, we knew we wanted to raise the family and live in an environment um, like this, where I am now, up near um, Byron Bay. And um, so when we recognized that there was an opportunity here, uh, that COVID was disrupting the way that we were going to live and work, um, the mantra for the family was turn adversity into adventure. And so the adventure was, even in times of uncertainty, when our family was wondering, why are you disappearing into a different state away from us all when there's all of this that's going on? Um, turning this into an adventure for ourselves and an experiment for us to learn what is it like to you know, change location, be in a place that's aligned with our values and to experiment with how this might work to serve us from our work and life agility perspective. 
Mm, I love that, turn adversity into adventure. That, that's wonderful. We're almost out of time. So to wrap up, I mean, you've had a really interesting um, life. So you've had your period and your experiences as, a, as a, an elite athlete and everything that that's taught you. Then you've moved into psychology and really d dug deep and done your doctorate. And, you know, so you really have that, that, that perspective. And I know you've also... Um, got yoga and some of those other uh, practices that are that are a big so you've, you, you've looked at some of the eastern philosophies um, and really integrated all of those things so where we are now and everyone's at a different um a, a different point you know i talk about equilibrium and you talk about peak performance um if someone's listening to, to this and they're not they're not at their peak if you like they're not feeling uh, particularly great um what would the what would the starting point be in terms of your advice to for for them or someone who whose team member is feeling like that because ultimately that we, we're individuals but many of us are responsible for you know running departments running businesses running companies for other individuals and we want people to feel good because when people feel good then they're going to perform better you know going right back to what you're saying around uh, around well well-being but what is the starting point because sometimes it can feel like when you listen to the, when you listen to these conversations, when you're not feeling so great, it can feel like you know Mount Everest, and uh, you know too hard, you know, yeah, too yeah. hard to even get started. But you must have been at such a low point when you cracked your back. You know that must have been such a a low point. And the fact that you were able to pull yourself together and get back, like, literally get back onto the onto the track and um, compete for your country, is like. It really, for me, that's like it shows the impossible is actually possible because many people would have just said, just give up your dream and just, uh, you know, forget it and go and rest um, and eat, you know, eat pizza. Um, but you didn't do that. You got in the swimming pool. You're going to work that through. And so long way of asking that question. But what what advice or what tips, what would you say to someone who is struggling right now? Yeah, I mean. There's two things that come to mind that I think are important to sort of put forward here. One is that it can be quite typical and we are kind of socialized into this remedial or deficit model of improvement and growth. So oh, where's my biggest weakness and how do I solve it? Now, um, sometimes a level of recovery or remedial intervention is needed if it's really a handbrake to your ability to be effective. So yes, it has its place. Um, is it the best place to start? Not necessarily, even if it is our pattern or our default sort of orientation. Um, so we need to look at and understand, okay, are there weaknesses and challenges that are a hindrance for me right now? And might that be the most relevant priority for my attention and energy right now? Or is there an area where I've currently got capability and maybe even strength? And if I emphasized and reinforced and strengthened that even further, how could that be a valuable resource and capacity for my progress from here? Because sometimes we can find that in doubling down on a valuable strength and seeing different ways that you can apply that strength, it can render a weakness obsolete or irrelevant. Um, so let's look at this whole spectrum opportunity for our growth, not just what's the problem and how do we fix it, but what are the opportunities and how can we strengthen our capabilities from the base that we are actually at currently. And the second piece I guess wanna to add to that is that the importance of starting small and not trying to have unrealistic um, expectations. 
We love having big audacious goals because they um, give us this sense of hope about what's possible and it's exciting and how amazing it would be if I achieved that. And between that goal and where we are now is a hell of a lot of hard work. And if we don't have the energy for that level of reach, Yes. We can sometimes give up before we've even started. So it was a great idea, but in practice, it didn't actually play out. Mm. So start where you are and look at the immediate smaller term actions and practices because the small steps accumulate into amazing progress over time. But let's start where we are and be realistic. Mm, that's wonderful advice. I completely agree. I think sometimes if you look at, look, because I, I've run a lot of marathons in, 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 in the past and you tend to think, you look at the entire race, it can be overwhelming, but if you break it down, they're like little doors. And then as you go through a door, then the next uh, the next part of the track uh, sort of opens up. And so it's, uh, it, it's, it's really interesting. But listen, Adrian, thank you so much for um, spending time with us today and sharing your, your, your wisdom and your experience. I'd like to acknowledge you, of course, for all the work that you've done and the work you do, um, presently really helping people and organizations to, um, to perform better and to understand and to, uh, to really recognize the, the strengths that they have rather than focusing on the weaknesses because uh, it is a balance. Uh, it is a balance and it's, it's turning those, uh, those weaknesses into strengths. So where can people find you and find out more about, about yourself and Benny Button? Yeah, so uh, bennybutton.com is the website. Uh, come and have a look there. We've got a number of um, digital tools that can support people, apps as well, that can support individuals and workplaces um, to make sure that this is available and accessible and, and to be honest, even affordable for as many people as possible, right? Um, so there's that side of what we do and also creating experiences um, whether that's training, uh, consulting and advisory, mentoring and coaching to support individuals, teams, workplaces um, through this period, uh, bringing together this important um, balancing act of well-being, performance, work and life, uh, that whole mix. So, um, yeah, contact us if uh, there's a way that we can support you from here. I'm sure, and uh, and I'd like to leave everyone with that, with your mantra: turn adversity into adventure. I love that. That's really cool. Anyway, thank you, Adrian, and thank you, everyone, Thanks, for your time. Yeah.